from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden's pick for Air Force acquisition says his top priority, if the Senate confirms him, would be to reduce sustainment costs for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Andrew Hunter told the Senate Armed Services Committee that there are ways to lower costs for the fighter jet, but he didn't elaborate. The Government Accountability Office has warned that high sustainment costs could become so expensive that the Air Force would have to either cut the number of F-35s or drastically reduce flying hours. The Defense Department says its civilian employees must be completely vaccinated against COVID-19 by November 22nd. A Pentagon memo sets a timeline for when civilian employees must get their shots based on the type of vaccine. New DOD employees must be fully vaccinated by their start date or by November 22nd, whichever comes first. The Pentagon previously mandated that all service members must be vaccinated. Each military branch sets those individual vaccination deadlines. The Department of Energy is installing the nation's first exascale supercomputer. The supercomputer called Frontier will be capable of calculating one quintillion calculations per second. That's far faster than modern systems. Researchers will be able to process massive amounts of data and conduct groundbreaking simulations spanning many areas. Frontier will take up nearly two football fields of space and will be based at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. The Pentagon gets $700 billion a year to spend across all Defense Department programs. But the DOD's purchasing power within that budget is declining. That's according to Bill Greenwald. He's visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. Bill, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So you say this, quote, the defense budget has become predominantly a social program that only as an afterthought provides some residual defense capability. A social program? How's that? Well, you have to add up the expenditures, and it comes in really three different ways. Uh, the first is direct spending. In other words, those areas where the Department of Defense is actually paying for things that could more uh, likely be found in, in, in other parts of the, of, the def- of the budget. The second are indirect expenditures, and these are mandates put on personnel expenditures, on contracting expenditures, and so on, which uh, uh, essentially get to social outcomes, but add cost and uh, have an innovation effect uh, on, on, on the department. The third, of course, is just the way they contract and, and, and uh, moving contracts around geographically and so on. But how specifically does it become a social program? I mean, are you saying that it's essentially a jobs program that will, you know, go for some sort of weapon systems because it's, you know, it, it provides jobs, not because that's the best weapon? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's one particular case. In other words, uh, the, the Buy America provisions and various uh, uh, labor mandates and so on uh, do create jobs. But there, there are other areas that... In, that in, uh, uh, implement uh, whether it's uh, healthcare spending or uh, uh, various environmental mandates that aren't necessarily the same that are out in the economy. So therefore, companies and the department do different things and add additional expenditures to their products and their services that aren't necessarily out there in the United States as a whole. And why is that bad? 
What impact does that have? Um, when we are, when we don't have a uh, near peer competitor like China, it's probably not a big deal. You know, in other words, it just depends on how much purchasing power you're getting and value you're getting out of your money. But if your adversary is essentially doesn't have the same uh, mandates, they can get to uh, weapon systems faster and cheaper. So what are your recommendations then for reallocating that, for fixing that so-called social program? Uh, a lot of these mandates are popular, very politically popular. So you have a choice of either increasing defense spend, uh, spending to um, essentially get the types of uh, 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 weapon systems you want, or you essentially adopt uh, various pathways around these, these mandates to allow the defense industry and the department to innovate just as the commercial sector does. And you mentioned China. Uh, China doesn't have these kind of acquisition processes that we have, to, to put it mildly. What, how is that putting us at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis China? Well, you know, it, it, this didn't really bother me until I started seeing some uh, papers on purchasing power parity. In other words, what the Chinese were getting for their much lower uh, dollar threshold uh, of a budget. And, and, and that, that's really problematic when the Chinese start producing more ships, more missiles, uh, have more uh, uh, troops in, on the ground. That's important, and we have to shift if we're act or either that or we're going to have to work uh, more closely with our allies. Bill, I want you to drill down a little bit more on the solution here. So, yes. you know, let's assume that we're not going to get a bigger defense budget. What can Pentagon leaders do to gain back some of that purchasing power? There's a really good example uh, that uh, the department can emulate, and that's the, that's the issue of SpaceX. SpaceX was essentially uh, absolved from these mandates, and under a, a uh, authority called other transactions, were allowed to uh, essentially innovate as a commercial company. The result was they did something that NASA uh, measured as 10% of what it would take if we took the way we normally do business. 10%. And oh, and what did they achieve? 10 times the productivity. So those are the type of things the authorities are there, uh, the, the, the Congress has given the department those authorities. They can go out and create 100 SpaceX's and disrupt the, uh, the innovation sector with the same amount of money if they choose to do so. You're saying that this can be applied large scale to the it, Defense Department. If you can apply it to launch vehicles, you can certainly apply it to ground vehicles, missiles, aircraft, and so on. Bill, I want to pivot in, our, in the time that we've got left. I just want to ask you about that trilateral um, uh, nuclear submarine deal. Yes. Um, that was between Australia, the UK. Canada got left out. Why do you think that's, that's the case? I mean, they're, they're one of our closest allies. Yeah, and, and, one, and actually one of our closest industrial allies. And, and it's really one of those cases where the Canadians have not uh, quite seen the threat the same way that the Australians and the UK has. And they're not spending the same amount of money as they are as a percentage of GDP. So I think there was this view is that they're not going to pony up the dollars necessary to create their own new submarine force so let's go with these other allies who... But is that true? Were they not willing to do that? Well, I think that's a discussion that needs to happen now. And hopefully it will. And All hopefully right. the Canadians will, uh, will come out and, and, and be a continuous part of the, uh, uh, the club. So All speak. right. Well, Bill, thank you and nice talking to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on the show.
You can find a link to Bill's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, growing threats abroad at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, recommendations for the 2022 National Defense Strategy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Biden administration is currently working on writing the 2022 National Defense Strategy. That strategy should face challenges from adversaries like China, Russia, North Korea and the Taliban, as well as the ramifications of rapidly expanding global threats. Brian Clark is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations. Brian, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me on. So how do you think the strategy should prioritize threats, given that there are so many? Well, it's clear that China probably poses the biggest uh, national security threat to the United States right now, mostly by, by our allies. You know, our allies in Japan uh, and in the Philippines and in Taiwan um, all face threats coming from China and are going to have to uh, address those in concert with U.S. forces. So that's probably the biggest challenge the U.S. is facing from a national security standpoint. Uh, there are others that the, the strategy will have to address, for example, Russia and its threats to our Eastern European allies. Uh, and also the th threats posed by Iran, non-state non terrorist actors, and, and also climate change. There's an, you know, there's an aspect of that that has to be addressed as well in terms of how do we uh, think about how we, we design our military forces. You mentioned China being the biggest national security threat and also Russia. I'm curious to, to see if, is it possible that those two could ally against us? There's been some talk of that, and there have been some exercises recently where Chinese and Russian forces have operated together, uh, both in uh, Europe and mostly in the Western Pacific, um, where there is, of course, Russia has a, a presence in the Western Pacific as well. Um, it, that alliance has seems more, um, you know, sort of a, an alliance of convenience. You know, so when opportunities present themselves, they'll, they'll, they'll ally with each other or operate with each other as a way to show um, maybe the potential solidarity they would have. It's unlikely that they would actually join forces in the in a context of a, uh, an armed conflict, though. Uh, they more likely have their own interests to pursue. So how does U.S. military growth and modernization compare with that of China? Well, the U.S. military um, is still, uh, in overall, uh, more capable uh, and larger in some ways than the Chinese military. But I think one thing that we people have to sort of uh, digest is the fact that the, the Chinese armed forces are actually the biggest armed forces in the world in most dimensions. So they have the largest uh, ground force, the largest uh, Navy, uh, largest Coast Guard, largest, largest maritime militia. They have the biggest air force in at least Asia. Um, so in a lot of ways, they are the largest military in the world, even though the U.S. might be more capable uh, and have a larger proportion of, of high-end forces within its military. Um, the other challenge the U.S. faces is that China is able to focus all of its armed forces on the Western Pacific uh, and its you know, potential confrontations there, whereas the U.S. has to deal with its global responsibilities. You say in your article, quote, after homeland defense, deterring aggression by China and Russia is arguably the most important strategic objective for the strategy to address. How should the DOD go about doing that? Well, the DOD is going to have to face this uh, this kind of challenge that they have now of, of dealing with a pure competitor. So we really can't deter China in the same way that we deterred or tried to deter countries like Iraq or Iran uh, or even North Korea, where we can show them that we could actually prevent them from being successful, what we call denying them um, their opportunity for aggression, uh, and show them that we just stop them uh, because that would make, make them stop you know thinking about aggression. Uh, instead, we have to think about how do we uh, steer China away from aggression as a tool for achieving their objectives? Because 
because if China really wanted to take Taiwan probably within the next five or six years, they'd be able to do it you know, just by virtue of the mass and the, and the proximity uh, that they have to Taiwan. So we got to think about other ways to deter, which would involve a combination of increasing the costs of aggression, both in terms of their military forces they might lose and also the, the, the money and time they may spend on it. Uh, and then also reduce the benefits of aggression. So show that there's going to be an allied response to it that is not just uh, military, in, in, but uh, incurs other dimensions as well. So there's economic repercussions, there's political and diplomatic repercussions. So raise the costs, increase the, or reduce the benefits is probably the approach the U.S. is going to have to take, which is how we approach this in the Cold War with the Soviets. You recommend that the U.S. military establish a strengthened forward defense posture in the Indo-Pacific. Right. What does that mean and why is it necessary? Well, to raise the cost of aggression and uh, make it more uncertain for the Chinese that they would be successful against a country like Taiwan or the Philippines or Japan, uh, you have to have a forward defense. You have to for have forces there because uh, China has cl such close proximity to these potential targets that you've got to be there in order to rapidly intervene. Otherwise, if it takes you know weeks for U.S. forces to flow into theater, they're not going to be able to form a very credible deterrent or contribution to the to the fight. Um, so you've got to be there to, to be a, a contributor. That involves not just posture of forces keeping them forward and maintaining them forward. It also means you got to have the training capabilities up forward. You have to have the pre-positioned stocks of supplies and weapons. Uh, and these are things that the Indo-Pacific commander um, has argued for both Admiral Davidson and now Admiral Aquilino. And what about defense research, development, and acquisition? Do you have recommendations how to yeah. improve those? Yeah, so clearly the U.S. needs to think about these new approaches to deterring aggression, which is about creating more uncertainty for China about their success, uh, creating more options or adaptability in the U.S. force so that it, it improves that uncertainty for the Chinese. So you got to think about, um, and this is what the military is doing with the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, is trying to create a force that is more adaptable, more able to combine different uh, forces uh, in different force packages, different uh, looks, different presentations than maybe we've seen in the past uh, that create uh, the opportunity opportunity for commanders to be able to, to flexibly uh, address what China might do and create more uncertainty for China that how they might be able to succeed. So it's a lot about networking and uh, creating more interoperability. And Brian, briefly, what are you most interested to see in the 2022 national defense strategy? Um, I'm most interested to see how the, how the uh, the DOD addresses this challenge that China is a pure competitor and we can't take the same approach to them as we took with Iran and, uh, and some other regional competitors of the past. We really have to go back to that Cold War playbook and think about what are the things we can do to dissuade China from being uh, from pursuing aggression rather than trying to suggest that we're going to be able to stop them no matter what, because it's just a very hard thing to do when you're the away team as the United States uh, and they're the home team as the Chinese. All right. Well, Brian, we'll wait for that strategy to come out. Thank you very much for being on the program. Uh, thank you. It was great being on. You can find a link to Brian's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, active duty military personnel costs continue to rise. Straight ahead on Government Matters, managing those costs and the impact on future missions. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The size of the U.S. military has declined more than 60% since the Korean War, but the cost of military personnel has doubled. 
So can the DOD afford a military force big enough to address current and future threats? Seamus Daniels is Associate Director for Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seamus, nice to have you. Thanks for having me. So when adjusted for inflation, military personnel costs have more than doubled in the last 70 years. Why is that? Well, when we're talking about growth in personnel costs, the first milestone we have to look at is the end of conscription in 1973 and the transition to the all-volunteer force. Right, so that meant that the Department of Defense had to increase wages and benefits so they could compete with the private sector to hire personnel. But really, at the turn of the century, we saw a high rate of growth in personnel costs, and that's down to a few reasons. Uh, Congress wanted to close the pay gap between civilian pay, private sector pay, and military pay. So they passed repeated raises above the employment cost index, which measures private sector wage growth. Uh, so that led to compounding, uh, compounding costs in terms of personnel. But at the same time, we saw growth in health care costs and housing costs and retirement. So all of that really came together to contribute to a high rate of growth in the 2000 to 2010 period, roughly. So are you suggesting that military service members are being paid too much? No, I'm not suggesting that they're being paid too much, but I think we need to take a holistic look at the compensation structure uh, for service members and also for the way that we actually manage our personnel. There's a lot of focus right now on modernizing our capabilities in the Department of Defense, but I think the department also has to take a look at how it modernizes the way it manages its people. Right, so that's also looking at you know, compensation structures to make sure that we're retaining and recruiting highly skilled people for burgeoning fields like cyber. But at the same time, the services have to think about the requirements uh, for platforms and you know, whether we need officers or enlisted personnel to operate things or you know, whether we need certain amounts of people for certain missions. So what do you say are the impacts of these high personnel costs on the military and in the mission? Well, to put it quite simply, higher personnel costs means that it's a more expensive force. And if we're seeing growth above inflation, a high rate of growth for personnel costs, that means to simply keep the force at the size it is today, uh, the defense budget also has to increase above inflation. But I think we know, especially today, that budget politics on the Hill can be uh, quite fickle at times. So that's not a sustainable model for actually addressing personnel costs. And what we've seen the department do as personnel costs have grown is that they've actually cut the size of the force. So to accommodate that, um, essentially we're reducing active duty and strength. And to simply cut the size of the force um, in order to address high personnel costs, that's not a sustainable model going forward. But isn't that okay because of the technological advances we have in artificial intelligence, machine learning? Doesn't that mean we need less warfighters? Technology is a great way to actually reduce personnel costs, but it depends on the way that the department is actually employing that technology. So we can look at platforms like remotely piloted aircraft that take personnel, that takes the pilot out of the aircraft. But what we've seen actually is that the services uh, staff those platforms the same way that they would with crewed platforms, with crewed aircraft. So essentially we're not actually seeing the savings uh, that we would expect from that technology. So I, I think the department has to be really mindful about how it chooses to employ new technologies. So you have a couple of recommendations for how to manage this. What are some of your recommendations? Yes, I, I think when we're talking about it 
holistically, right? So in terms of not only looking at compensation, but looking at force management. Um, so that means that we have to think about how the services actually uh, come up with their requirements for missions and platforms, whether they need certain amounts of people, who are the types of people that they need, and who are we prioritizing recruiting and retaining? Especially, as you mentioned, with the focus on higher technology, we need to recruit and reta retain those highly skilled people. But at the same time, Service members are the bedrock of our military, service members and their family. So we have to think about the experience of military personnel as well. So that means looking for opportunities uh, for personnel to come in and out of the military, to have private sector experiences and really build, their, build and develop their skills, but also potentially reducing reducing PCS travel, which really puts a strain on those families. You know, you, met, you alluded to this earlier, um, to use less expensive personnel for certain tasks. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you give the example of the Air Force requires officers to operate remotely uh, piloted aircraft while the Army uses enlisted. Obviously, enlisted are much cheaper than officers. Yes, and I think that's one example of what the services can do to actually reduce their personnel costs. So it's not necessarily about saying, oh, we have high personnel costs, we have to reduce the size of the military, but how can we actually think about using our people in the best way possible? Do you think there's a high enough level of attention on this issue? Do you think the Pentagon is focused on this, that Congress is, is also worried about this? I think there's a lot of focus right now on what's going to be in the, next, in the next national defense strategy and the emerging technologies that are going to be important for strategic competition with China. But at the same time, we have to focus on modernizing all aspects of the department, not only on our warfighting capabilities, but on the way that we manage our people. All right. Well, Seamus, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mimi. You can find a link to Seamus's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 p.m. on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.